Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he is coming. This is the great doctrine of the church. But there's no other doctrine in all of the faith that holds a candle to the second coming when it comes to the amount of false teachings that surround it. And a really common type of false teaching is attempting to predict the date of Christ's return. So we've been dealing with the faulty biblical interpretations related to setting dates for when Jesus will come back. And we've talked about those who, unlike anyone else in Christian history, believe that they, they, when nobody else could, they know when Jesus is coming back. Perhaps the most pathetic of all was the now infamous 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988. It was written by Edgar Wisenant. Um, and it sold a whopping 4.5 million copies. And in, in addition, he gave 300,000 pastors in America a free copy because he was hoping that they would preach the material to their congregations and get everybody in, in the world basically ready uh, for the date that he was coming. Um, believe it or not, when Christ didn't return in 1988, the author simply changed the book and the title to 89 reasons why Jesus will come in 1989. And then he actually did, all the way from 88 to 94, he republished the book, the last one being 94 reasons why Jesus will return in 1994. Uh, and the only reason he didn't do 95 in 95 was because he couldn't find a publisher who would publish it. So last week we spent time connecting date settings specifically to heresy and false prophecy in general. Right, a, a, a sub-unit uh, of heresy, but we also started talking a bit about general false prophecy. And tonight, I'd like us to take a broader view that the scripture teaches about false prophecy, and then we'll apply these biblical principles back to date setting. So, from a biblical perspective, there are basically three kinds of false prophecy, and here's where your blanks start tonight. The first kind of false prophecy, number one, contradicting scripture. And to illustrate this, let's look at the uh, part of uh, Paul's first missionary journey where they're in Pisidian Antioch. And uh, this is in your notes there. Look from Acts chapter 13. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and they began, notice this, they began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that, notice this, the word of God, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. So in this passage, we see Jews contradicting God's word and the scripture actually calls it blasphemy. The second kind, so the first kind is contradicting scripture. The second kind of false prophecy, here's your blank, predicting the future erroneously. And this is all the way back, as we'll see. It goes all the way back into Old Testament times. So let's pick up the story uh, during Eng, uh, uh, King evil, uh, evil King Ahab's reign in the northern kingdom of Israel. And he sends for the prophet Micaiah, who was a true prophet, um, to see if he'll corroborate all of the other prophets that are telling him about going into war. Look here, from it's in your notes in 2 Chronicles 18. Then the messenger who went to summon Micaiah, Micaiah being the true prophet, <coughs> spoke to him saying, Behold, the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. So notice, he's got 400 guys that are telling him, go into war against Ramoth-Gilead. That's what the 
prophets have universally, uniformly been saying. So they're informing Micaiah what he's supposed to do. Look at this. So please let your word be like one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, and this is amazing picture of true prophecy. As the Lord lives, what my God says, that I will speak. And now Micaiah proceeds to tell Ahab that he must not go into battle against Ramoth Gilead. And he even goes so far as to predict Ahab's death if he does, look in verse 23, and again, this is in your uh, handout tonight. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chinonah, so this is one of the false prophets, uh, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek because Micaiah had, had launched into all the things that are going to happen uh, if he goes into battle. Um, and he said, how did the spirit, this offended false prophet noted, notice, how did the spirit of the Lord pass from me to you, to speak to you? Then the king of Israel, that's Ahab, said, Take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the son's king, and say, Thus says the king, put this man in prison and feed him sparingly with bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah said, this is a remarkable prophecy now on Micaiah's part. So Ahab's going to ignore the true prophet. He's going to listen to the false prophets, and he's going to go into battle. And notice what Micaiah said. If you indeed return safely... The Lord has not spoken by me. This is a remarkable statement of how confident Micaiah was that God was actually speaking through him as a true prophet. And notice the standard that Micaiah set for himself. He literally says, if Ahab goes into battle, and if his prophecy about Ahab's death doesn't come true, then God has not spoken through him. He's saying that, if someone prophesies about the future and that prophecy fails to come true, that person has not spoken for the Lord and is a false prophet. So predicting a future event wrongly or uh, it, the converse, either of those means that you are not a true prophet. It's false prophecy. And the third kind of false prophecy, number three, here's your blank, using any human philosophy, using any human philosophy, opinion, idea, or tradition, as the authority for truth. We see this expressed really uh, well in Mark chapter 7. Look, the, again, the text is there in your notes for, for ease. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? And notice we're going to see this thread all the way through here. Confronting the word of God, the incarnate word of God himself, because he's not following their tradition. But eat their bread with impure hands. And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me. Look at this, a great statement. They are teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts in setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your own tradition. So three basic kinds of biblical false prophecy or false teaching. Um, and notice, this isn't just a New Testament truth, of course. It was always what God warned us against because he knows how much God's people even want our own way rather than his. So look at this amazing statement from 
uh, Jeremiah chapter 5 in your notes, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. Think of all the horrible things that Israel had done, all of the idolatry. My goodness, they had, they had uh, sacrificed children to the detestable God of Molech. There had been unbelievably appalling things, but look what the really horrible, appalling thing is. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. That's not the appalling, horrible thing. Look what it is. And the priests rule on their author own authority. That's not it either. Look at this. And my people love it so. So not only is Jeremiah lamenting that there are false prophets, there will always be false prophets. But what he decries as the most appalling and horrible thing is when God's people love false prophecy. So these passages lead to a key concept. Here's your blanks. Anytime we base our beliefs or choices upon our opinions or traditions. Got that? Anytime we base our beliefs or choices upon our opinions or traditions rather than upon God's word, we're creating our own heresy. So let's go back to the biblical truth about anyone's ability to foretell when Christ will return. Here are two major texts. There are many others, but look at this. Therefore, be on the alert. This is from Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse. Be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. And from Acts chapter 1, Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times and the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. And these passages give us two biblical axioms. Here they are. Axiom number one. Here's your blanks. No one knows the day and no one ever will. No one knows the day and no one ever will. And biblical axiom number two, here it is. Date setting is always false prophecy. And here's why this is true. Here's where date setting is always false prophecy. Number one, here's your blank. It contradicts scripture, which remember, that's the first and main kind of false prophecy of the three biblical kinds. And number two, it predicts the future falsely. So it is also the second kind of false prophecy among the three. Every date setter in history has always been wrong, and in the future, everyone will be wrong. In fact, <laughs> in fact, I think that if somebody happens to nail the date, God's going to change it so they'll be wrong because the precept stands. No one will ever know the day. So now's a good time to take a step back and ask a question about what we've covered. What's the big deal? Who cares if some people pick a few dates here and there? Does it do any real damage? Now to answer this question, let's identify the impact of true and false prophecy. I think this will be helpful, especially since I'm going to unpack, we're going to do a lot of scripture tonight. I'm going to unpack these with, the, with scripture. Um, so notice here, impact number one, here's your blank. True prophecy brings unbelievers into the kingdom. True prophecy brings unbelievers into the kingdom. So turn with me to Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 3, and starting with verse 13, here we go. Acts chapter 13, excuse me, Acts chapter 3, starting with verse 13. And the God of Abraham, this is Peter preaching, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered, he's talking to the Jews now, delivered up and um, disowned in the presence of Pilate 
when he had decided to release him, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact which we, uh, to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, in the name of Jesus, which, is the, the, uh, which has strengthened this man, it is in the name of Jesus that has strengthened this man whom you know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance. <laughs> Not a very user-friendly message here, right? Just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of the prophets that the, his Christ should suffer, uh, 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 this has been fulfilled. Repent, therefore, repent, therefore, and return that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come to you from the presence of the Lord and, uh, that, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you. Look at verse 26 now, the last verse in the chapter. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you away from his wicked ways. And now watch the response to this clear teaching of true prophetic statements of the word. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple of the guard and the Sadducees came upon them. And they were greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of them came to about 5,000. So notice the power of preaching the truth. And even though this was a scathing message, many heard it and believed. Second impact, impact number two, true prophecy, here's your blanks, true prophecy protects God's people from the schemes of the enemy. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6, way back about 20% uh, of the way into your Bible. Uh, we pick up the story during the time that Elisha was the prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. And we get to listen in on a war council that's being had by the king of Aram, who's attempting to invade Israel. So, 2 Kings chapter 6. Look at this, verse 8. This is really a great story. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8. Now the king of Aram was warring against Israel, and he counseled with his servants, saying, In such and such a place we shall be, shall be my camp. And the man of God, that's Elisha, the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Arameans are coming down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. So this, of course, freaks out the king of Aram. He has no idea what's going on. Look at this now, verse 11. Now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? He clearly thinks he's, there's obviously a double agent in his midst, because every time he deploys his army somewhere, the king of Israel has already fortified that. So clearly he knows there's some, there's some in, insider scam going on here. Look at verse 12. One of his servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elisha, 
the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words, listen to this, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. (laughs) Would that make you a bit nervous? Boy, that would change the pillow talk a bit, wouldn't it? Amazingly, think of of that. True prophecy protects God's people from the schemes of the enemy. Elisha kept Israel safe because of this true prophecy. Impact number three, here's your blanks. True prophecy saves people from destruction. We now turn back to the time of Elisha, right? He was, Elijah, excuse me, who was right before uh, Elijah and Ahab, uh, king of Israel. So turn with me back to uh, 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 21, 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishpite, saying, Arise now and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, You have murdered and have taken possession. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In this place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs shall lick lick your blood, even yours. And Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon you and will utterly weep, uh, weep you, uh, sweep you away and will cut off the Ahab from every male, both bond and free in Israel. Verse 22, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation which you have provoked me to anger and because you have made Israel sin. Whoa. How's that for being straight with Ahab? He gives this scathing prophecy right in the face of the king. And look what happens. This is remarkable. Verse 27. And it came about when Ahab heard these words, that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted, and he lay in sackcloth and went down about despondently. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me. Amazing. I will not bring the evil in his days. So here's your blanks. The result of heeding true prophecy... True prophecy saved Ahab's life. Impact number four, here's your blanks. True prophecy turns straying believers back to God by seeing through their blind spots and calling them to repent. True prophecy turns straying believers back to God by seeing through their blind spots and calling them to repent. Let's pick up where King David uh, has committed adultery and murdered Bathsheba's husband. And now you can be turning to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And now he's spent months hiding his sin. Nathan the prophet comes before him and tells him a story about a rich man and a poor man who had nothing but one tiny little lamb. And you may be familiar with the fact that Nathan is setting David up, but David doesn't realize it. So 2 Samuel chapter 12, 2 Samuel chapter 12, look at verse 4. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take his own flock or his own herd to prepare the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it 
for a man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. By the way, be really careful when you speak judgment on someone. Look at this, verse 6. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. And now Nathan sticks his finger in David's face and he lowers the boom. He tells him that the calamity of the calamities that will come upon him because of his sin. And after his scathing tirade, look at David's response. Very different than Saul's response when Samuel came to Saul and he lost his kingdom. Look at this. Look at verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. So God used a true prophet to save David's life and David's soul. Think about this passage. This is King David, the man after God's own heart. But even David had a point in his life where he rejected God's word and went his own way. None of us, what's the story? None of us are immune from the potential of straying from the ways of the Lord. So let me ask you, let me ask you, do you allow any true prophecy in your life? Does anyone have the permission to tell you what you need to hear? You should welcome Nathan, the Nathans in your life. They're painful, but we should welcome them. And you should give them permission to say anything they need to say. These painful people in your life are actually God's gift to you. They can save your life and they can save your soul. Sometimes it's the preacher. Sometimes it's someone else around us. But the Nathans save our lives and save our souls. So we've looked at the impact of true prophecy, right? The four impacts of true prophecy. Now let's look at the impact of false prophecy. Impact number one. Here's your blank. False prophecy turns unbelievers away from the faith. Look here in your notes, Acts chapter 13. When they had gone through the whole island of, uh, as far as Paphos, here they are on the first missionary journey, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet. So Paul, Luke here, the writer, identifies this um, Bar-Jesus as a false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Isn't that great? Sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And let me give you an example of a modern day false prophet where this kind of thing happens nowadays. What happens when Harold Camping's 1994 book failed? Camping claimed, just let's suppose the worst case, that, I mean, it's amazing to hear a little of the arrogance, that we managed to get to October 1994, ha ha, meaning he knew when Jesus was coming in September, so we weren't going to make it there. So notice, what if Camping was wrong, saying of himself? What was it if Camping was all wrong? What, if we, what have we done in the meanwhile? We've been getting the gospel out. Is there anything wrong with that? 
Watch this. Here's the commentary. We often hear that many new believers have come to Christ as a result of a group's proclaiming a date for the end. But some frightening problems are overlooked amid all the rejoicing. Are such conversions genuine? How many of those who come to faith on such a basis become disillusioned, abandon the faith, or simply lose interest in Christianity once the prophecies fail? Moreover, how many people will use failed predictions as examples of why they don't trust Christians or the Bible? If an unbeliever hears a prophecy teacher setting a date for the rapture, and it doesn't come to pass, the unbeliever might say, well, if this Christian was so sure that the Bible taught these things, and now we know they're not true, why should I believe him when he tells me that the Bible says Christ died for my sins? Impact number two. Impact number two. False prophecy can lead believers astray. So we've seen the impact on unbelievers. It can also lead believers astray. Listen to this. Lee Rim, who was influenced by the prophetic teachings of American evangelist Percy Collette, became an overnight sensation with his bestseller titled Getting Close to the End. Published in the late 1980s, this book was a driving force behind the Hugo movement, which promoted October 20. Uh, 8, 1992, as the date for the rapture. The fateful day arrived. About a thousand hopefuls filled the Dami church in Seoul, on, uh, Seoul, South Korea, on October 28th to await the rapture. Some 1,500 Seoul police officers and 200 detectives waited in and outside the church, fearing a mass suicide if the rapture didn't take place. When October 29th arrived, many began to weep. One distraught member of the movement cried, God lied to us. Others attacked the preachers who had led them to believe the prophecy. Cult researcher Mignon Kwan took away two knives from deprogrammed members who had intended to kill their pastors. He himself was seriously stabbed as he passed out flyers against the movement. Violence and bitterness toward God are natural results of prophecy gone astray. We should never underestimate the potential disillusionment that believers might experience when human-generated prophecies fail. Impact number three. False prophecy impact number three. Here's your blanks. False prophecy leads the people of God to waver while they decide whether to follow the true prophet or the false prophet. We see a clear example of this when King Ahab faces off with Elijah. So let's go back. Go back to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 18, this famous story where it's set the setup for Mount Carmel. Look at this, chapter 18, verse 16, 1 Kings. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to, to meet Elijah. And it came about when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? And he said, I have not troubled Israel. But you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Now, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah, so 850 total, uh, who eat at Jezebel's table. Verse 20. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the uh, prophets together at Mount Carmel, 
prophets in quotes there, of course. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long, look at this, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And look at this, wavering, hesitating, stuck in the middle between the true prophet and the false prophets. But the people did not answer him a word. Notice this. These 850 false prophets are analogous to much of what goes on today. And it even goes well beyond just date setting. You have those who push the health and wealth gospel, the name it and claim it gospel. You have renowned ministries that so overemphasize things like healing that it excludes almost all other biblical teaching and truth. You have the power of positive thinking, the think better, live better, your best life now. It's amazing. Books, TV, movies, radio broadcasts, teachers, preachers, and the voices of truth surround us. Sometimes this noise is so loud it drowns out solid, clear biblical teaching. And many of, of these voices are talented communicators. And so they can really spice it up. They can really get a crowd. These personalities often reach celebrity status and they can make classic, orthodox, historic biblical doctrine sound mundane while they make their heresy sound intriguing, exciting, and even life-changing. Beware of false teaching. Everywhere it appears, don't get taken. Impact number four, false prophecy leads us, here's your blank, leads us to the truth being maligned. False prophecy leads to the truth being maligned. Look at this from 2 Peter. The false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, look at this, because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. Look at this as another modern-day example. The secular media love to characterize Christian ministers as bumbling idiots who abuse and mislead their congregations. Their expectations are not disappointed by date setters who are covered in the media almost as much as moral and financial church scandals are. After the Hugo fiasco, one newspaper reporter sported, uh, sported the headline, Flash, the world didn't end yesterday. And another one, we got the message wrong, frustrated believers say. Those are the headlines on the fronts of newspapers. The humanists also chalked one it up for one more reason to mock Christianity. And a writer of the Skeptical Inquirer said, if the fundamentalists are right that the Bible is inerrant, then it accurately records the words of Jesus. In such a case, Jesus would, have, would be the source of a prediction that turned out to be wrong. So Jesus is a false teacher. Notice, the truth is maligned by these. Impact number five, false prophecy can even lead to people's death. We now pick up again where evil King Ahab is reigning in the northern kingdom. Jehoshaphat, so Ahab's in the north. Jehoshaphat, who's a great godly king, is king of Judah. And Ahab is trying to 
entice Jehoshaphat into an alliance so that he'll go with him against Ramoth-Gilead. You've already heard some of Micaiah saying, hey, don't go against him, right? But all the 400 prophets are saying, yes, go. So Ahab marches out his 400 prophets who supposedly give the word of the Lord. So go to 2 Chronicles chapter 18. 2 Chronicles chapter 18. And look with me at verse 5. Verse 5. Then the king of Israel, that's Ahab, assembled the prophets, I would put in quotes, 400 men and said to them, Shall we go against Ramoth-Gilead into battle, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for God will give it into the hand of the king. Now verse 11, look at this, and that you've heard this, but now in the context of this, this uh, uh, error, and all the pro uh, prophets were prophesying, saying, Go up on Ramoth-Gilead and succeed, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Then the messenger went to summon Micaiah, and he spoke to him, Behold, the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. So please, let your word be like one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what my God says, that I will say. And so, despite what the 400 false prophets said, Micaiah, the true prophet, tells Ahab, that he has been deceived and should not go into battle. Ahab is incredibly angry, and we heard Micaiah is thrown into prison. But before he's taken away, he has one more prophecy for Ahab. Look at verse 27. Verse 27, And Micaiah said, If you indeed return safely, the Lord has not spoken by me. So his prophecy is there to save his, Ahab's life. That's why the prophet is being negative. But Ahab prefers the message of the false prophet. So he goes into battle despite Micaiah's warning. And here's what happens. Verse 33, the end of this chapter. And a certain man drew his bow at random. Don't you love that? Drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. So he said to the driver of the chariot, turn around and take me out of the fight for I am severely wounded. And the battle raged that day and the king of Israel propped himself up in his chariot in front of the Arameans until evening and at sunset he died. Now remember a previous passage from tonight. Elijah's prophecy in 1 Kings 21 led Ahab to repent and respond. And God told him that he wouldn't bring the calamity because he had humbled himself. Well, now we can see that there, are, there were two kinds of prophecy in Ahab's life. Two kinds, here's your blank. True prophecy saved Ahab's life, but false prophecy took it. And don't think this has just uh, uh, gone away in modern times. Listen to this. Really remarkable. Pay attention. Pastor Byung On, leader of the Los Angeles Maranatha Mission Church, had moved to Los Angeles in the 90s. His congregation at its peak comprised 500 members. Due to his heretical practices, however, many members left and formed an organization called the Federation of Victims of Maranatha. On prophesied that on April 28, 1992, the door would be wide open to preach the gospel in communist North Korea. He also prophesied that on October 10, 1992, the rapture would take place. Neither prophecy came to pass. Maranatha Mission hired security guards to protect members from loved ones who were trying to take their family members out of the church. Can you imagine hiring guards to keep family members away from saving, basically, these people from this cult? 
The Federation of Victims of Maranatha was organized to help those loved ones who are still involved in the sect. Former members listed the abusive practices they experienced when they were members. They assert that Pastor Ond claimed salvation comes through him and that he would give his member, members golden crowns in heaven once they were raptured. Every night the members prayed out until about 5 a.m. in the morning. Sometimes their throats became so sore that they began to spit blood. In fact, some of Ond's followers considered this a sign of the assurance of their salvation. Members who frequently spit out blood <clears throat> were the most likely candidates to be raptured. Isn't that amazing? Here's the commentary. Destructive behavior follows many end times groups, whether Maranatha Mission, the Branch Davidians, or many other ones. As the Hugo movement raced to the October 28, 1992 rapture date, at least, listen to this, at least four suicides were linked with the movement, as well as several abortions. You ready for this? The women were afraid that they would be too heavy to be taken up in the rapture, so they aborted their babies. Evangelicals in the United States also make statements that could lead to destructive behavior, alleging an onslaught of apostasy within almost every church in the current final tribulation. Harold Camping, talking basically about all the rest of the church, wrote this, There's no time left to trust your pastor or your church. You must trust only the Bible. Here's the commentary, of course. Of course, from Camping's vantage point, trusting only the Bible amounts to trusting only Camping's interpretation of the Bible. Think of this. Deaths related to false prophecy didn't just happen in King Ahab's time. They still happen in our time. So I want to make sure that we don't fail to see the pervasiveness of this issue, even if we don't pay attention to date setting. Perhaps you might say, this isn't all that relevant to me because I ignore those crazy date setters. I'm not taken in by them. But I want to broaden the prophecy issue for us tonight. Biblical prophecy isn't just about foretelling the future. It turns out that there are two kinds of prophecy from the biblical perspective. Ready? Here are your blanks. Here are the two kinds of prophecy. Foretelling... Here's your blank, which is predicting the future. Foretelling, which is predicting the future. And forthtelling, forthtelling, the word going forth. Forthtelling, here's your blanks, correctly and truthfully speaking the word of God. So here's the overwhelming emphasis of biblical prophecy. Many people think that pro biblical prophecy is only foretelling the future. Not at all. The overwhelming emphasis of biblical prophecy is this. Ready? Here's your blank. Most biblical prophecy is forth-telling, correctly and truthfully speaking God's word. Many scholars believe that only about 5% of the prophetic scripture predicted the future, and all of the rest consists of faithfully speaking the truth of God's word, even when people didn't want to hear it. So here's what the true prophet says. Here's what it sounds like often from the true prophet. Thus says the Lord, if you walk in God's ways, he will be your rock, your redeemer, and your strong tower. But if you continue on your current path, so notice it is future-minded, but it's not predicting the future. It's simply saying, here's God's word. You go this way, he's your strong redeemer. But if you continue on your current path and go your own way and ignore God's word, then you will ruin yourself 
and your children will pay a high price for your disobedience. Forth telling, speaking the true word of prophecy. This is what most biblical prophecy sounds like. And the amount of foretelling is very limited even in Scripture. So let's do our applications. Application number one. Believing falsehood rarely begins with an obvious break from the truth. Believing falsehood rarely begins with an obvious break from the truth. In a day where our culture is so blatantly, blatantly re, uh, rejecting and disregarding the ways of the Lord, it's easy to get lulled into thinking that darkness and falsehood are always dramatic, obvious, and clear. And since most people who go to church aren't out there doing all those horrible things, we can easily be lulled into thinking that we're safe from the falsehood that will end up separating us from God. Many of us think that the enemy's primary approach to humanity is via a direct frontal attack with blatant evil and obvious rebellion against God. And no doubt, there are some who've walked away and been lost because of a direct, intentional pursuit of a life of sin, rejecting the lordship of God in their life. But I want us to look at the primary way people end up ultimately rejecting God. In fact, to see this, all we have to do is to go back in time to the approach the enemy took when humanity lived in perfect communion with God. It's in your notes. Here's the text from Genesis 3. Look at this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Notice the progression of, of the serpent's statements. First, number one, here's your blank. He starts with a question. Did God really say? Did God really say? Notice the enemy always begins his attack by trying to get us to mistrust God and to question whether his word is reliable. And number two, you surely shall not die. Here's his message. You can find life on your own. You don't need God to live. In fact, if you really want to live, you'll ignore God's word. You surely shall not die. And number three, number three, you can be your own Lord. Think about how this went down. While Satan ultimately told them a lie, that's not where he began. Look again at the progression of his interaction with them. First a question, then a lie. And then an enticement. So here's the essence of what the serpent said. Here's your blanks. The essence of what the serpent said. You can experience good apart from God's ways. You can experience good apart from God's ways. And notice the subtlety of all of this. In fact, notice the truth that the serpent had told them. Was the fruit a good thing? Of course it was. 
It was a perfect thing. Everything God made was good. So it was perfectly logical that it was a good thing for them to have good things. That's what they were thinking. It's perfectly logical. But here's the catch. Here's your blank. The serpent knew what they didn't know. Write it in. Evil is simply taking one of the good things that God has made. Think of that. Evil is taking simply taking one of the good things that God has made and using it outside of his timing or his plan or his purpose or his approval. This is true of every single good thing. Money, intelligence, power, humor, profession, beauty, pleasure, success, relationships, possessions, strength, creativity, sex, authority, knowledge. Every one of these things were created by a perfect God to bring about perfect fulfillment for us when they're used for his purposes in his timing. In this sense, there's no essential evil. This is a remarkable thing that the Christian philosophers have, have taught for many centuries. There is no essential evil. Evil is always ultimately the misuse of good. Listen, murder, which is evil, is simply the misuse of power or authority or strength, which are good in themselves. But they're only good when they're used for God's purposes and consistent with his ways and used in his time. But you can misuse power or strength or authority and kill someone. So, when we use anything good outside of God's ways, the good becomes evil, even a perfect piece of fruit. And application number two, ready? Application number two, the primary way that the enemy ruins lives is a big surprise. The reason I say this is because we all know the passage that says in John 10.10 10, that the enemy has come to kill, steal, and destroy. The, the enemy has come to do that. His plan is destruction. And given that, notice something very unexpected in the Genesis pass, passage. It wasn't Satan that destroyed Adam and Eve. Have you ever noticed that? It wasn't Satan that destroyed Adam and Eve. Their own choice to reject God's word destroyed them. So here's the enemy's approach to humans. Here's your blanks. Although Satan is the great destroyer, his principal approach to destroying humans, to destroy humans, is through his role as the great deceiver. Let me say that again. The enemy's approach to humans, although Satan is the great destroyer, his principal approach to destroy humans is through his role as the great deceiver. Genesis 3.1 is one of the most telling passages in the Bible. Look how Lucifer chose to reveal himself at his very first appearance to humanity. Write it in from the biblical text. Ready? Here's Genesis 3.1. Write it in. Now the serpent was more crafty, more crafty than any beast. Let that sink in for a moment. The enemy didn't present himself as a huge lion or some terrifying carnivore who was bone crushing and a horror to behold. He presented himself as a crafty serpent. Now think about the specific progression of how the serpent dealt with Adam and Eve. Three steps. Let me write it in for you here as you're writing it in. Three steps. 
The first thing he did was he questioned the word of God. He questioned, they, they, step one, they questioned the word of God. Step two, disobey the word of God. Specific progression. Question the word of God. Excuse me, not questioned. Question the word of God. Disobey the word of God. And then finally, ready? Become your own Lord. Here's the enticement. Question disobey, and here's the enticement. Become your own Lord by using the ready, the good things that God has made for your own purposes. Every creation, every bit of the creation is good. It's inherently, intrinsically good. But the enticement is use, you become your own Lord so that you use God's good things the way you want to rather than him. And of course, nothing has changed since Genesis 3. The enemy comes to us and asks, did God really say? And then he says, you surely shall not die. And then finally he says, I've got a great deal for you. You can call your own shots. You don't need God telling you how to run your life. Your ways are actually higher than his. You can be your own God. That's why God began the whole Bible with this truth. And as if to punctuate this point, think about how he ends Scripture. He began with this truth. How does he end Scripture? In Revelation chapter 20, when Satan is released from his captivity, do you know what he does to the nations? The great destroyer doesn't destroy the nations at the end. The great destroyer, Revelation 20, read it. He comes and he deceives the nation. So start to finish, the history of Satan is pervaded with this, his role as the crafty serpent. And like never before in our day, the world around us is trumpeting his mantra, don't worry about what God's word says, you surely shall not die. And this is exactly how false teaching works. It's insidious, it's clever, it's subtle, it rarely comes out and boldly announces its true agenda. So it clutters the mind, it confuses issues, and then people make seemingly trivial choices, and almost unwittingly, those trivial choices, when strung together over time, become an eternal choice. So I finish tonight with some questions. Listen carefully. Are you able to identify the subtle lies around you? Are you aware of how easily duped we are? Have you taken the time to identify the areas in your life where you're particularly susceptible to being deceived? Are you watching out for how subtle the wise sounding and clever and intriguing falsehood is that can surround us? And have you surrounded yourself with people who have the wisdom to know when you're beginning to err? And have you given those wise counselors around you the right to confront you and to hold you accountable? Let me ask you, are you being duped by the ever-present question, did God really say? Is there anything in the word that you don't like or you don't want to follow or you don't want to do? 
And what you're saying is, oh, did God really say that? Maybe that's not what he meant. So I'd like to leave you tonight with a challenge. After I finish, I'd like you to take a few minutes to write down several names of people whom you trust to be honest with you. They may already be part of your life, or you may ask them. Make sure they're mature, trustworthy believers, and go to them and give them the right to watch your life and to confront you if they believe there's anything in your life that's sliding away from the pure devotion to Christ. And then, with at least one of them, agree to meet on a regular basis. I find that it's helpful to give them a card that lists the things that are in your life that you really know you need help with, things that are temptations or whatever. Just have them ask you literally the questions about those areas of besetting sin in your life. And um, by the way, uh, I heard one person say, uh, always make sure the last question is, did you lie on, any, on your answer to any of the earlier questions? Gives you one more chance to be honest with an accountability partner. Once you've agreed to work together in an accountability relationship, give them permission to nail you to the wall when they have any questions about your decisions or any questions about the direction of your life. Let's pray. Lord, save us from our bent to be so easily deceived. Save us from the lies that surround us. Save us from the false prophecy that seeks to destroy us. Convict us of our love for falsehood. Make it really clear to us, Lord. Show us when we desire our own ways rather than yours. And save us from the sly, slick liar who has a plan to steal our birthright. Lord, may your Holy Spirit make us the kind of people who quickly identify falsehood in ourselves, in the church, and soundly reject it. May we be people who want to know the truth, no matter how costly this is to us. May we be thirsty for the truth, hungry for the truth. May we so desperately desire the truth that we'll give our very lives for it. Lord, please raise up true prophets in our land and in our churches. We so desperately need them today, Lord. Please surround us with people who will confront us with your truth. Lord, send Nathans into our lives. And when they point their finger at us and tell us the truth about ourselves, open our ears and open our eyes and grant us the humility to repent, Lord. Give us hearts that are broken and contrite so that when sin is pointed out in our life, Lord, we quickly return in humility and we're thankful that you've sent someone to help us, to save us. We love you, Lord. Amen.